If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. There's a story that when William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066, he did so with the support of someone very powerful, the Pope. However, All may not be as it seems, according to historian Daniel Armstrong. Dan is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of St Andrews, and he's recently published an article on this subject. David Musgrove called him to find out more and began by asking, where did this idea that the Pope supported William's invasion come from? Well, the idea is largely rooted in the fact that we have a contemporary source which tells us that he did, that is, uh, William of Poitiers uh, and his life of King William, uh, refers to an incident where he says that Pope Alexander II grants William the Conqueror with a papal banner to basically sponsor his invasion of England. So that seems pretty conclusive then. Why why are we having a conversation? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why we should be sceptical about what William of Poitiers is telling us based on kind of what we know about William of Poitiers as a historian and a writer and what we know about the papacy uh, at this time. OK, so um, let's let's jump into uh, William of Poitiers. Who, who was he? What do we know about him? So William of Poitiers was born around about 1020 and he starts to, he begins life uh, as a knight, but then enters the church. Uh, And he ends up in the employment of William the Conqueror uh, as one of his chaplains and indeed possibly perform the role as one of his confessors. So he knows the the Conqueror quite personally uh, in that sense. And he writes a life of King William in the early 1070s, which is a kind of a panegyric and defence of his actions as king, basically trying to eulogise his kind of hero uh, figure and defend his actions in the face of some criticisms he's receiving elsewhere. Okay, and you've mentioned uh, the Pope as well, Pope Alexander II. Um, So he was Pope at the time of the conquest, being Pope for a a few years um, by 1066. Um, What do we know about him? Have we got a full life story of him? 
So yeah, you're right. Pope Alexander II had been pope for a few years by 1066. He became pope in 1061 and dies in in 1073. He's a he's a figure from history that's slightly overshadowed by his successor, Pope Gregory VII. Um, but he was very important. Um, he is part of a kind of succession of popes who are really trying to push the papacy's central role uh, in the affairs of Europe uh, during this period. And this comes in the form of kind of pushing spiritual reformers, but also increasing its role uh, in terms of its relationship with lay rulers at this time. The papacy pre-1050 is quite uh, localised, whereas it becomes much more kind of global, in inverted commas, uh, in its outlook um, then. But he also has a bit of a difficult time as well, uh, as do actually most of the popes in the 11th and 12th century. Alexander is specifically faced by an anti-pope, which is an individual who has been elected pope at the same time as him and is basically challenging his legitimacy and also faced uh, with incursions uh, from the Normans of southern Italy, which threatened his position in Rome. Okay, so he was having having a difficult time. Just going back to your, to your broader point about the papacy, how much so in the in the mid 11th century how much power did the popes have and were they were they regularly sort of trying to intercede in conflicts and disputes across Christendom so the mid 11th century or the 11th century in general is this really dynamic period of history and the papacy is is right at the heart of that um, and they're increasingly trying to advertise their authority. And it's sometimes better to think as much in terms of authority as it is power when we're thinking about the papacy at this time. Uh, that authority is rested in the idea that they're successors of St. Peter and that they have moral authority as arbiters and hence they can have a kind of greater standing uh, in affairs at the time. Now, in terms of intervening in disputes and affairs and all those sorts of things, Yes, they are increasingly doing that, uh, but crucially, they're not trying to encourage conflict. Well, that's that's interesting, isn't it? So, conflict and violence, obviously, it doesn't feel like a very Christian thing. What, did the pope was the were the popes um, sort of out to to outlaw violence, or did they have a, a more nuanced view on that? Violence is categorically a bad thing in the Middle Ages. Peace, ordered succession, they're all things that the the church and the papacy. Uh, are trying to promote. So they're really not trying to encourage basically conflict uh, or bloodshed because these are all uh, sins and a threat to uh, the salvation of the individuals committing those acts. Now, papal banners. You mentioned that to start with, that uh, Poitiers uh, suggests or, or says that uh, William was was granted a papal banner by the Pope. What What is a papal banner? What do we know about the the materiality here? So they're they're interesting. They're very interesting. Uh, I think the first thing I'd like to say is we don't know exactly what they look like, uh, which has created some interesting discussion and speculation as to what they possibly look like. Um, some individuals have played a sort of Where's Wally game with a biotapestry, searching for what they might think might be a papal banner. But given we don't really know what one looks like, um, it's quite hard to do. Um, traditionally, these banners have been seen as symbols which acted as sanctions of conquest granted by the papacy to rulers for their martial activities. Now, this idea originates of a German historian, Karl Erdmann, um, who basically saw the granting of these banners as precursors to the idea of crusading with the papacy kind of working out ideas which could justify um, military actions by Christian rulers. There is a problem with Karl Erdmann's pattern. Um, the evidence for much of these banners that he claims were granted by the papacy 
uh, for military actions is quite flimsy. There's either no evidence really at all for them, uh, or it's very late. It comes from, say, the 12th century, which, you know, when you're talking about something in the mid-11th century, is quite a, a big time gap uh, there. And interestingly, the only two papal attestations for papal banners during this mid-11th century period uh, come in cases where these banners were seemingly not granted for warfare. They seem to be more symbols granted by the papacy to rulers as recognitions of their authority and legitimacy. So just going back to the bias, actually, there's a few there's a few places where people have, have sort of uh, uh, advocated or argued that there might be the paper. And there's one uh, like a triangular pennant type thing at one point where that William's holding, isn't there? And then there's another thing on top of his flagship as he, he's sailing across the the uh, the channel. You, you don't um, you don't think either of those things are, are, are particularly likely candidates for being papal banners? Personally, I don't. I can see why people may have made those, those arguments. That they seem, if there is a if there is a paper banner on the biotapestry, those two that you mentioned would be the most likely candidates. Given that we don't know what a papal banner looks like, it's quite hard to make those arguments. Yeah. Okay. It's a shame. So there's no there's no papal banners in museums that anyone could go and see and uh, and get a good idea of. Sadly, not. There is there is a papal banner in the dressing up room of I think Battle Abbey, which you can uh, go and run around with if you want to. But uh, no, <laughs> none, none, no, no historical eleventh century ones. That's a good substitute. Um, so before we get onto the idea of, of of whether the Pope might have granted something to, to William. Um, we need to think about the dynamic between the papacy and the English monarchy in the run-up to 1066. Um, so King Harold was on the throne. He, he came to the throne at the start of 1066, um, succeeding Edward the Confessor. What was what was the view um, um, of the papacy on those monarchs? Um, was was the dynamic difficult? So this is very tricky because we have very little evidence to really understand what the relationship of the papacy uh, with Harold or even Edward the Confessor um, was really like at this time. Much of it is retrospective uh, and Norman in origin and this retrospective Norman evidence has quite an agenda to tarnish the legacy of Harold and those around him, especially the English church. Um, It's all part of the narrative that the Normans develop after the conquest to justify um, that invasion. Now we have some small snippets where we can gain some kind of little bits of appreciation of what might have been going on at the time. So during Harold's 10 months as king, we have no record of any contact between him and the papacy. But in 1058, Harold does visit Rome. And possibly this occurs at a time when an anti-pope, Pope Benedict X, uh, is in the city at the time. So if that is the case, and if Harold had met an anti-pope before, there are reasons why Alexander II and his party might have some concerns um, about... King Harold as his loyalty to their kind of faction. But there is also evidence that goes the other way that suggests that the relations between England and the papacy prior to the conquest might have been quite positive. Uh, We have an interesting pattern of papal privileges um, granted by various popes to recipients in England uh, during this time, which is rather unprecedented in its numbers, uh, which suggests that there were growing connections uh, developing between the papal see and England. Okay, so we've covered the context there we've covered most of the terms that we uh, talked about in the introduction let's let's get to the meat of the matter then you don't think that we should take william of Poitiers at face value um what is your view on whether william was sponsored by alexander ii in advance of his invasion so yeah that, that's exactly my belief is he's not 
sponsored in advance of his invasion. Uh, and I think there's probably two pillars to my argument. The first is the one that we've already touched on when we've discussed the ideas about the papacy and its views on violence at the time. Um, and whether they'd be ready to sponsor the invasion of a Christian kingdom and basically dispose an anointed king. I'm sceptical that they would want to do that, uh, which we can touch on a little bit more, I'm sure, in a minute. And then the other one really comes down to how much faith we're going to put in Poitiers' account. He is the only contemporary source that tells us that William the Conqueror was sponsored by the papacy. Now, a number of historians have picked out possible elusive remarks which might uh, act as corroboration uh, for Poitiers' claim, but often the reasoning uh, in connecting these passages to Poitiers are quite circular. Basically, you know, Poitiers says this, so therefore this implies that Poitiers is right, or basically looking for, there's basically a bit of confirmation bias um, going on there. And I guess I'm also part of a, a group of historians who are increasingly sceptical of the Norman narrative of the conquest that are arguing that we need to question these details that are being put forward by the Normans for the justification of their act of violence. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you read the various Norman narratives that are written after the conquest, we see a lot of slipping and sliding that goes on as people adjust their arguments depending on what uh, other people are arguing and what suits the kind of narrative that people are trying to construct at the time. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, but you think that perhaps the Pope might have granted a papal banner a little bit later. What's what? Explain your logic. Yeah, so I think when I when I came to this question, I was pretty confident by the end that the the evidential pillar and the um, the idea of the papacy not wanting to sponsor an invasion at this time were pretty strong ones. But then I'm faced with a problem of kind of what's going on here. It's, it's all well and good me telling you that I don't think he exists, but what what is Poitiers doing? 
Um, and really, I was faced with with two options when I was thinking about this. One is that Poitiers simply makes it up uh, and invents the idea that the, the invasion was sponsored by the papacy. Or two is the idea that maybe um, he's taking something from somewhere else, manipulating something, or uh, in this case, uh, I believe, antedating an instant. And I came to this when I looked at what specifically happens in England after the conquest and what is happening elsewhere in Europe between the papacy uh, and rulers there. And there's two particular instances um, which, really, uh, which I was particularly drawn to. Uh, and these occur in the two instances I mentioned earlier about rulers being granted papal banners by the Pope as recognitions of their authority. Now, the first comes in 1076, when the Pope Gregory VII basically supports a, a ruler who is in modern-day Croatia named Demetrius Zonomir. Now, Demetrius uh, is a man who's in a precarious position on the throne at the time and appeals to papal aid um, to help him secure his position he's faced by internal, external threats, etc. And he asks Gregory VII for some support. Gregory sends him a legate who crowns him, who celebrates a church council and does various things to bolster his legitimacy within his territory. Something similar happens again in 1078 when a ruler in modern-day Serbia, a man named King Michael of Zeta, uh, also requests um, papal aid and actually specifically asks for a papal banner to be sent to him, which is very interesting. Uh, specifically because it implies that the agency in these dealings lies with the ruler rather than the papacy. They are actually actively seeking papal authority. They see it as something that's important for bolstering their position. And I think something similar is happening in England in 1070. Now, William the Conqueror faces quite a significant challenge to his position on the throne, uh, between 1069 and 70, and appeals seemingly appeals to Pope Alexander II for aid at this time. It's all very well and good uh, beating your opponents in the field, but you maybe also want to kind of win over the minds of men by bolstering your legitimacy uh, and the way people are thinking about that. Now, Alexander sends over some legates. Uh, like in 1076, they celebrate some church councils. Uh, there is a ceremony where William is crowned, and this seems like an instant where it is possible that William the Conqueror may have been granted a papal banner. Now, this is only this can only be a tentative or speculative suggestion, but it fits um, with a lot of the ideas um, that are going around at the time. It would work in terms of why there is so much silence on the banner. One granted in 1070 is a lot less remarkable than one granted in 1066. And it would also fits with the agenda of William of Poitiers. Uh, what he would be doing, therefore, is taking something that was seen as a symbol of papal favour and turning it into a sanction of conquest, basically antedating it uh, to bring it back in time. And it would be relatively believable because no one could really prove anything otherwise. OK, so it's a it's a theory, but it's a it's a it's an interesting theory and it, and it does fit um, the narrative you're talking about there. I just I wonder before we um, talk a little bit more about Poitiers and and, and his um, his agenda, we've got these these legates going to England in uh, at the end of the ten sixties. Should we imagine them as some sort of peacekeeping mission then? Yeah, I mean I think they they are sent across to England to basically show as as a statement from the papacy that they support William the Conqueror at this period. Um, legates are often sent 
to places during times of conflict to basically try and encourage peace. Uh, we see this in Milan in 1067. We see this in Anjou in the mid-1060s, that these figures basically are sent to try and act as arbiters or to try and help kind of like settle uh, things down in territories. What do we know about the reaction more broadly across Europe to William's conquest? Was there was there a lot of concern about this Christian to Christian bloodshed that that he had initiated. I, the reaction across Europe is quite mixed. I think there's a fair bit of uh, adulation for William. This is quite an impressive victory, and suddenly he's become one of these main players, basically on the stage in Christendom. But there also is a fair bit of shock in terms of the mass bloodshed that's been caused, and William is faced with a, a fair bit of criticism. He's killed an anointed king on the battlefield, so he's committed regicide. Uh, and there's been a lot of bloodshed uh, at the time. So therefore, this is not something that's seen necessarily as good. Mm, yeah, OK. Interesting stuff. So so Poitier then, going back to him, sort of according to your reading of the story, he's he's actively sort of changing the date of the granting of this papal banner, if, if that uh, indeed happened, in order to help legitimise William's invasion. So what does that tell us about Poitier and what he was trying to do and what he was worried about? Yeah, so... I think one of the useful ways to read Poitiers' text is to read it as basically a defence of William's actions. He's answering various criticisms uh, that are being made against William and basically trying to refute them. And it shows that Poitiers is willing to be relatively creative. He has this idea that William is the the just, legitimate and rightful king. And he's willing to basically uh, present a narrative which depicts him as such. And I'm sort of imagining Poitiers, according to the way that you're writing about it, as uh, a bit like uh, an unfortunate junior minister sort of wheeled out to defend an unpopular government policy. Is that is that any sort of a reasonable way to think about him? Yeah, I, I quite like the idea. Um, I've also thought a little bit about this myself and wonder if he's a little bit like Squealer in George Orwell's Animal Farm, uh, that he kind of comes out and presents the kind of message. I think the important thing that I would stress is that I would put the agency firmly with William of Poitiers in telling this tale. Uh, I don't see him as a sort of official figure that's kind of a court propagandist told to kind of uh, tell a particular narrative. Uh, Instead, I tend to view the writers um, of the Norman Conquest as a group of individuals uh, who are associating themselves with William the Conqueror and seeking to gain from him. And I always really liked Ian Kershaw's idea for the Third Reich of working towards the Fuhrer, this idea that you know, officers and bureaucrats in the Third Reich, they're not being told what to do, but they're acting in a way that, that is perceived to be what Hitler wants them to do. Um, they're pushing those ideas that they believe that he is implied. And I think it might be useful to think of the, the Norman writers around the conquest as writing towards the conqueror. Um, they are... What I'm trying to say is they're trying to write a history that they believe William the Conqueror uh, would approve of and seeking to gain favour from him. Okay, and we should we should definitely listen to Ian Kershaw, Professor Sir Ian Kershaw. Uh, uh, though, as you said, he's a, a noted expert on the Third Reich. He started his career as a as a medievalist, didn't he? So uh, working on uh, Bolton Abbey records, I think. So he so he knows his stuff. So that's a that's a good um, a good comparison. Now, look, reading your um, your article, one of the things that struck me is uh, just how complicated the reaction to the conquest was, and it just it just sort of reminded me of the point. As we tend to see 
medieval history, this particular aspect of medieval history, maybe it's quite one dimensional as, as if, you know, if something happens, then the reaction is, is, is pretty simplistic. Everyone kind of just follows the idea of, of, uh, of the right of might and Williams won the battle and that's, that's the end of it. And, and nobody really needs to, to worry about it any further. But, but what you're talking about is, is, is quite a, a clear case and a complicated case of, of people needing to legitimize themselves. Um, do, do you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Um, when it comes to constructing William's legitimacy, and if you read the various Norman narratives that are written after the conquest, we see a lot of slipping and sliding that goes on as people adjust their arguments depending on what uh, other people are arguing and what suits the kind of narrative that people are uh, trying to construct at the time. And the conquest is is not alone in this. If we take, say, the, the 1080s and the conflict between the papacy and the German rulers then during the civil war in Germany, there's this really interesting collection of polemics that are going on at the time with individuals basically trying to say that God is on our side despite the fact we're losing on the battlefield, etc. So, you know, just winning on the battlefield doesn't necessarily mean God's on your side. People are willing to construct arguments to argue against that. Okay. And last point, we're having this conversation at the same time as a uh, a terrible war is uh, is raging in Europe. Um, and part of that war is there's a lot of historical precedents being used to justify military action uh, and the rights of the and wrongs of that conflict being discussed uh, on both sides. Do you draw any parallels from what's going on there and, and what happened in 1066? Yeah, I think broadly speaking, we can see some parallels between 1066 and 2022. Uh, firstly, we've got an interesting case where we have two leaders who seem to believe in their own destiny and are concerned with their own legacy and are willing to leave a trail of bloodshed in their wake in order to achieve that. And then secondly, the idea that violence and conquest essentially needs to be legitimate and justified is as important now as it was then. And we see this in the way that the Normans try to justify the conquest. They paint the English church as schismatic. They try to discredit Harold as an oath breaker. Uh, they try to invalidate his anointing. And they also need him dead for William basically to win. And we see similar things coming out, I guess, of Putin's rhetoric about his invasion of Ukraine. It suggests that Ukrainians are neo-Nazis and he targets Zelensky in particular. And what I think, and this came across really strongly to me uh, in watching the news develop over this time, is that it is interesting that some of the most of the reasons that Putin is using for his invasion of Ukraine seem incredibly outlandish to us. But some people do believe them. Um, and it really is a warning shot to us as historians in how we approach our evidence. Just because someone says something happened in the past doesn't mean they're telling the truth. Uh, people are willing to make things up and there are various reasons why people might lap those details up, whether that be simply ignorance uh, and inab an inability to verify those claims, um, the strong belief in an individual or a cause, or the fact that a detail may absolve them, um, the idea that essentially convenient uh, fictions can be more powerful than the truth. So really, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that we need to question every detail in our narratives. Okay, so so last thing then is uh, this is a really interesting story and tells us a lot about the character of, of William of Poitiers and, and perhaps tells us a bit about uh, the, the troubles that the papacy was having. Does it tell us anything at all about William the Conqueror uh, and his personality and his view on, on, on the world? Yeah, I think it does. I think particularly if what I'm suggesting about 1070 is right, it implies that William 
is someone who is very concerned about his own standing, uh, his legitimacy and his relationship with the church. He's very keen to have a good and strong relationship with the papacy. He sees the advantages of that and he's a very, I see him as quite a brutal but quite savvy man in his dealings throughout his reign. That was Dan Armstrong of the University of St Andrews. The academic article that was discussed was published in the Haskins Society Journal and it's called The Norman Conquest of England, The Papacy and the Papal Banner. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.